you happen to be visiting with us this morning, we are so glad that you're here. We'd love for you to take a Connect card out of that uh, black uh, registry that passes your way down the road and fill it out. You can turn it in, meet us at the welcome table after the service. We've got a free gift for you that we'd love to give you. If you would now, please turn in God's Word to John chapter 3. We're going to talk about Christmas and the serpent. Strange, no? You were probably expecting a lot of things this morning, and it wasn't that. Uh, We've got tons of creches and nativities at our house, and I can't think of a single one of them that has a snake. And yet here we are on Christmas Sunday in John chapter 3, and we're going to talk about snakes. Fiery, venomous, deadly snakes. Merry Christmas. I decided not to preach a typical Advent sermon series this year because we were already in John's Gospel. And it would be hard to depart from John's Gospel and find somewhere that is more Christ-focused and more Christ-centered. But I did imagine that I would shift gears for this Sunday and go to a different text. But as today drew closer, and I zeroed in on kind of where we would land with going through John more or less verse by verse, I resisted the urge to go somewhere else, somewhere safe, somewhere more expected for Christmas. Now, we're not going to leave the series this morning because this text, as admittedly unusual as it is, serves us well. It helps us with something that we really need at Christmas time. And that is a reminder to not let our gaze stop and come to rest on the babe in the manger. Yes, our, our gaze will pause there, certainly, but ultimately it must lift from there above the manger and look in the distance to the cross. It must look beyond Bethlehem to Golgotha. We need to be reminded that Christmas is but a means to an end whose purpose is to get us to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday. Now last week we looked at the end of chapter 2 in John in the first few verses of chapter 3 where we met Nicodemus, an elite religious leader among the Jews who came to Jesus in essence to, to size him up. Who is this man? He's caused quite a stir with his recent activity. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he engages him, but he doesn't get very far before Jesus turns the tables and begins to engage Nicodemus. And he has a thing or two to say to him, namely, Mr. Elite Religious Leader, you can't get into God's kingdom unless you are born again. And this shocks and offends and confuses poor Nicodemus. And so Jesus explains a bit more for him of this type of change and radical transformation that is necessary, this work of God's Spirit that has to happen before Nicodemus will be fit for God's kingdom. And so we continue this morning with that interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Please join me in prayer. Oh God, here we stand again, our our physical postures seeking to reflect what we hope is the attitude of our hearts of reverent submission to your word. Holy Spirit, would you come this morning once again? We need you. Our own understanding is, is bent and broken. Yours is not. Our ability to see Christ clearly and the gospel beautifully betrayed, it's like a dim and a dull mirror to us. But with your help, it will shine clearly and brightly. We will see Christ as he is. And Holy Spirit, by your miraculous and supernatural work, we will be able to embrace Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. These things do we ask for your glory and for our good. Amen. Please be seated. Let me give you a road map for where we're going this morning. There's an outline in your worship folder, if that's helpful. The first thing that we'll look at is Nicodemus' question that he has for Jesus. We'll then look at Jesus' answer. And then thirdly, we're going to dive into this whole bit with uh, Jesus and the serpent. And then lastly, I want to wrap up by telling you that I've got three people in mind this morning that this passage especially speaks to. We'll begin in verse 9. After Jesus telling Nicodemus that he has to be born again, telling him that the Spirit has to do this transforming work, Nicodemus asks a question. Or else he's dismissing what Jesus had to say. It it depends on how you read it. Which syllable you put the emphasis on. Is Is it inquiring? Is it, how can these things be? Please tell me more. I I want to know. Or is it dismissive? Is it, how can these things be? That's ridiculous. Whoever heard of such? So has Nicodemus been moved by what Jesus has said and, and he wants to know how the Spirit might do this work to make him fit for entering God's kingdom? Or as a Jewish religious expert who's no doubt spent years and years teaching people how they can enter the kingdom of God, obviously through means of their obedience to rules and regulations and their pious devotion to God and their humble submission to His will. Is Nicodemus receiving 
or is he rejecting what Jesus has to say? And we get a clue in how Jesus responds to him in verse 10. Jesus seems to sense this is really not a question at all. And he chides Nicodemus, are you the, are you the teacher of Israel? Or are you learned in all the scriptures and you don't get it? You don't see it? You don't understand? And Jesus goes on and he, he presses more in verse 11. And he starts talking to him in the first person plural. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is this we? I think there's a a couple of possible reasons that Jesus says we here, and and they're both pretty profound. I think one reason that he says we here is that he understands his role as a prophet of God. Throughout Scripture, God sent prophets. He sent men to be his mouthpieces, to deliver his word, his messages, to declare. And they always begin their messages with, thus says the Lord. And for years, God had been sending prophets. And for years, God's people had been rejecting prophets and persecuting them, rejecting their testimony, even killing them. And of course, Jesus knows the Scriptures. He knows full well of Moses recorded in Deuteronomy 18 saying, Hey guys, there's another prophet who's coming. A prophet like me, but greater. It's to him that you need to listen to. And so that's possibly why Jesus says we here. He sees himself coming alongside, coming in the long line of God's prophets here. But it's also quite possible that Jesus here is mocking Nicodemus. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, we looked at it last week, when Nicodemus approached Jesus, he starts off the conversation, we know you're a teacher from God. See, he comes to Jesus a bit arrogant, perhaps, offering to Jesus his knowledge. Here's what we know about you. Here's, Here's what we've figured out about you. And of course, their knowledge was woefully inadequate. It it almost seems like Jesus is responding to his, we know, with his own, we know, as a means of putting Nicodemus in his place, of, of humbling him. And if that strikes you as odd and that doesn't fit the Jesus mold that you're used to. You think, I don't, is it, is it appropriate for Jesus to, to mock someone, to, to put them in their place? Well, certainly it's appropriate. And it's appropriate because it is both gracious and merciful that Jesus would seek to humble Nicodemus and to expose his inadequate knowledge. How often do we approach Jesus? How often do we approach the Scriptures with our own understanding of things? When we look at God or we look at His Word through the lens of what makes sense to us. Well, surely God must be like this because, well, that just makes sense. Surely God can't be like this, well, because that wouldn't make sense if it were that way. 
Surely God must exist or not exist based on my understanding of the facts as I see them. Why do we so often subject our God (laughs) to our feeble and frail and fallible minds and understanding? When we do that, we need to be put in our place. We need to be humbled. Verse 12. Jesus is talking of earthly things and of heavenly things. And I take that to mean simply that if you don't understand how this relationship gets started with the new birth, what this larger passage is about, if you don't understand how the relationship gets started with this need for total and, total and radical transformation brought by the Spirit, then how are you ever going to understand the whole rest of it? How are you going to understand anything else of how the kingdom of God works if you don't understand what the starting point is? The new birth is, is the cornerstone for understanding what it means to even be a Christian. If you miss that, there's no sense in building on a faulty foundation. Now, verse 13, I'm not going to dig as deeply into this one for time's sake. I believe it's very much related to verse 12, this, this ascending into heaven, having to do with the ability to grasp these deep truths that only the Spirit can assist us with. And that if anyone is going to gain entrance into the kingdom, more or less it's going to be on Jesus' coattails. Right? It's going to be on the one who descended from heaven. That, that's our only hope. Now what this leaves us with to address are verses 14 and 15. The serpent. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, when did Moses lift up a serpent in the wilderness? Well, it's recorded in Numbers 21. You can turn there if you've got your Bibles open or you can follow along on the screen. But as I read these few verses from Numbers 21, I want you to consider why does Jesus choose this account in trying to explain things to Nicodemus? He had the whole of the Scriptures to pick from. Why does he go here? And why in the world does he compare himself to a snake of all the things he could have chosen? Why a snake? Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food speaking of the manna with which they'd been fed every single day for nearly 40 years. We hate it. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So here's, I think, one of the big reasons that Jesus goes to this passage. Jesus had already told Nicodemus some of the how regarding being born again. Right, we covered that in last week's verses. It's the Spirit's work. He uses this account to drive home the why. Why do we need the new birth? Why must we be born again? What's happening in Numbers 21 is pretty straightforward. The grumbling, the complaining, the lashing out at God's prophet and at God himself. And and this must have just been bubbling beneath the surface for a long time because the text doesn't indicate any new crisis or or anything that that prompts this, but it must have just been the long, slow drag and burn of this below the surface to cause them to lash out in this way. They despise so much that God has done for them. How he miraculously delivered them from unbelievably oppressive slavery in Egypt. Fed them every single day with food they now say they detest, they loathe. And they complain about not having water, which is just false, because God's already met this need for them in multiple ways on, on different occasions. This was tremendous folly against God, and it kindles his wrath and his anger. And he sends fiery, that is, venomous snakes, to kill them. And as people are bitten and as they begin to die after the venom gets into their nervous system and causes their bodies to begin to shut down, the serpents have their desired effect. And the people come to realize how greatly they had sinned against God. And they cry out, Moses, be our mediator. Intercede for us. Beg God to take them away. And so Moses asks, and God prescribes a different solution, an odd solution. Calvin calls it absurd, but he says it's absurd for a purpose. He says it's absurd. It's so off the wall that it might unmistakably highlight that this is the mercy and the grace of God. This intervention is from him and from no one else. It's not just, oh, well, the snakes, they decided to go somewhere else. Oh, well, this, no. It's unmistakable. This was God's intervention. Make a snake, he said. Put it on a pole. Lift it up for all to see. And when they're bitten, all they have to do is look. Cast your gaze in that moment while the deadly venom is coursing through your veins. Cast your gaze on that snake and at once the fatal venom will lose its power. You will no longer die because of your sin. The snake Moses lifted up on the pole 
is an amazing picture of the gospel. This is why Jesus not only uses this story, but he owns it. He says, ultimately, it's about him. He says, in essence, I'm the snake. Which, if that doesn't strike you as odd, you're not paying attention. Jesus, a snake. Why? And the question is worth asking of God from the numbers account as well. Why a snake there? The snakes were the problem. Why would you take part of the problem and use it as your solution? Snakes are cursed creatures anyway. Why why would you use something that's cursed as part of your plan to save your people? You remember the snake's curse there in Genesis 3 after he has deceived and, and tempted Adam and Eve. God comes to the snake and curses him, pronounces a curse on him. And here Jesus is comparing himself to the snake. God uses part of the problem as his solution. Don't you see? Jesus was cursed for us. He became the curse for us. It's what Paul is getting at, I'm sure, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. To cure the problem of snakes, God said, make a snake. To cure our problem of sin, God said, make my son to be sin. The snake being lifted up foreshadows him being lifted up. Lifted up, is, is this language is used four times in John's Gospel, and it always has to do with Jesus being lifted up and His death on the cross. And so, this Numbers 21 account, and in Jesus owning it for Himself, we clearly see God's purpose here. We clearly see God's purpose is to give life to those that deserve death. That was the purpose in Numbers 21. I'm going to give life to those that deserve death. That Jesus would be lifted up, God is giving life to those that deserve death. God wants to give life through His Son. That's what He wants Nicodemus to see. Nicodemus, you you deserve death, but God wants to give you life through His Son being lifted up. But his eyes can't see that. He he can't grasp it yet. Not until he's born again. Now, I could go on and on about this passage. There's so much here. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. But I told you that I had three people in mind who I think this passage especially speaks to. And their names are... I'm not going to... I didn't mean it that way. The first person I have in mind is you're hearing this 
but it's not making sense to you yet. Frankly, you don't see how it pertains to you. You don't see yourself as deserving death. Frankly, you're, you're a pretty decent person. And you don't really sense the mustness of verse 14 there, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, if that's you, I just want to reiterate to you what was going on there in the desert. People died. God sent snakes and people died because of their sin and rebellion against God. And if you think you're not that bad of a person, would you look again at what it was that those people did that warranted their death? They didn't kill anyone. They didn't cheat on their spouses. They grumbled and complained. Are you better than that? This really is the crucial message at Christmas time. Lest we look only at the the manger and think, oh, what a cute baby. How sweet, how precious this gift is. We cannot forget the necessity that that little baby had to grow up and be lifted up if we're to have life. Jesus didn't take on flesh and enter our world merely for us to ooh and goo at Christmas time. We must find him to be our beautiful and necessary Savior or we will find ourselves paying for our own sins for all eternity. That's the first person who needs this message. The second person that needs this passage about the snake, of all things, to come to bear is the person that's here this morning that's facing adversity. Frankly, that's losing hope. Wondering if God is ever going to show up and meet them in their need. The, the kind of need, the kind of hopelessness that doesn't take a break for Christmas. In fact, it very often gets worse. It presses in harder. And you need this passage to be reminded that if Jesus was willing to be lifted up for you, what will he not do for you? If he has provided himself as the remedy for the direst eternal problem you could ever face, what situation will he not meet you in? What situation will he not carry you through? It's very much a Romans 8.32 kind of thing, that, that if God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not give us all things in addition to him? The third person that needs to consider Jesus here and the serpent you sense Jesus' presence in your trial. You know that He's there. You know that He's walking with you through it. But you sure wish He would walk you through a different set of circumstances. Oh, not these, Lord. Not this. Anything but this. Why, why can't there be another way than this? And what you need to see this morning, what you need to be reminded of, 
is that Jesus was lifted up. His way was the way of the cross, the way of suffering. It's not something he looked forward to. It is something he even begged the Father, take this cup from me. But he submitted. He said, not my will, yours. Friend, your way this morning may be the way of suffering. It may be the way of inexplicable pain and heartache. And if that's the case, then beg, plead that there be another way. But then by God's grace, find your place, find yourself at a place where you're submitting to and not walking away from the Lord. Don't let it drive you away. The pain and the suffering has a point. You might not know what that point is in this life, but we can be assured that even as it was for Jesus, there is a weight of eternal glory on the other side. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. This tiny babe in the manger would grow to be a man who was lifted up on a cruel cross for you and for me. Would you look to him this morning? Just simply cast your gaze on him. That's all he asks. That is all he requires. Let's pray. Oh, Father. You have some strange ways of getting your points across. You use some strange pictures, some strange images, some strange occurrences from history. But Father, we trust that you know best and that you know exactly what it is that you want to communicate. And so would you take your word, Holy Spirit, would you take this word about Jesus and the serpent and cause it to come alive in our hearts and in our minds to do that which you please. Would you draw us by your grace to the place where we see our need of a Savior lifted up for us? And by your grace, would you cause us to turn our gaze and simply look to him? Oh, Lord, do the miraculous work that only you can do. Do it for your glory. Do it for the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand.